Okay. All right, enough of that. Um, uh, oh, I got the wrong reference up there. Hang on, that's not it. Oh, snap. No, it's the right reference. It's 2 Corinthians 5. Hey, yay, it is. It's right. Ah, good. You'd think I'd know what Bible passage we have today. 2 Corinthians 5, and uh, we'll start it in uh, verse 1. Let me get this. Oh, dad got me. Hang on. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. Here we go. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. What's he talking about? Well, uh, our earthly dwelling, our body, this realm, this life, the mortal life. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Yea, that is, if we have a way to our heavenly dwelling. Verse 4. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing as God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith by sight. Da, 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 da. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away... We make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's an old quote uh, that I love and that I, I think I've shared with you a few years ago, which is this, that some of the most effective people in ministry are those who secretly dream of ways of getting out of it. You ever heard that quote before? Well, I, that's a quote that I love, and uh, I know some other fellow ministers who love that quote. We're kind of in a little weird fraternity, and that's how we think, that uh, some of the most effective ministers are those who secretly dream of ways of getting out of it. And you know who made that? who said that quote? I did. It's mine. Um, But let me say this, I love being in the ministry. I love it. I mean, I really, really just love what I do. I love my calling. I love where I am. I love my church. All my closest relationships are here. This is my home. This is the hub of my life. It really is. I love it. Uh, Tammy and I love it. Um, But my point in saying all that is this, that occasionally you look at somebody's granite countertops and you go, hmm, those are pretty nice. And I wonder if the energy exerted the time spent on it, the late night hours, all those things that are pointed at the ministry. You think, if I took that and went mm, and pointed it at a, at a business type direction, I bet I could generate some cash. You know, sometimes you think like that. Of course, um, every Christian is a minister of the gospel. Make no mistake about that. But my, my point is to, to say this. Um, I try to apply myself to the vocation of ministry with great vigor. I want to work hard in this ministry. That's what I want to do. 
All right, so building my point here, uh, I did a little bit of uh, tabulation. Technically, uh, even though you're a minister of the Lord too, all Christians are, technically, I've spent more man hours than anybody else in here on ministry, I bet. Um, I've preached conservatively about 1,500 times. That's a lot of times in some form. If I loosely add up the people, which I did, it's about 75,000 hearers. So about 75,000 sold. Now, of course, they're coming back week after week after week, right? All right, so that is about 75,000 souls. I lead worship too. Yay, so I lead worship, and I, I've done that in a bunch of different scenarios, and uh, I've done that at least as many times as I've preached, and uh, if I add up all the numbers of that, times two services and Christmases and all those things, and off-site and, and conferences and so on, I've led worship in front of about a million people. So you know what that makes me? Pretty much the best guy in the room. <laughs> yep, we're all ministers of the Lord. Right? All Christians are ministers of the word, ministers of the gospel. But guess what? I'm the best guy in the room. Just ask my wife. I'm just the best guy in the room. And, I mean, ladies and gentlemen, you see how ridiculous that is. That was a long way to go to say, oh, come on. Do you think that I think that I'm going to go stand before Jesus Christ one day and he's going to go, ha! Look at all you did for me down there. Wow, I couldn't have done that without you. Heck no. Does that sound like anything you've ever heard me or anyone at this church ever preach about the gospel? Never. It's not an accumulation of the good stuff that we've done in this life that we go, hey, Jesus, I know you saved me by grace, but look at all the stuff I did. Any spiritual good comes by the Holy Spirit of God, and not by man's works, not by trying hard, not by all that. Now, uh, you know, I'll tell you, in the history of redemption, in this book, my mind can't even think in other terms than grace. I mean, this whole book is redemption. The whole book is the story of redemption. And, and you may say, well, you know, you're, you're blind and, you know, we, we're in, we're in this three part thing. We're going to close it up today. This idea of an eternal reward system that so many Christians have heard preached and so many people are afraid of that, uh, what you've done in this life puts you in a ghetto in heaven. In fact, I've never met anybody that thought, well, I'm going to be in the front of the line. We're all going, oh, I'm going to be in a ghetto somewhere. He's going to be disappointed in me. Oh, it's so terrible. I mean, is there a cheerleading section out there? I don't think there is. What's the reality? Okay, so when we're, when we're viewing that, maybe I'm blind. Maybe I look at this and all I see is grace, 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 grace. But I would rather err on the side of grace. I would rather err on the side of giving God all the credit than the other way around. And that doesn't minimize sin in any way. God is holy, and he wants holiness from his people. He wants a set-apart people, and I'll tell you, a desire for holy things is evidence of the Spirit's presence in your life. In other words, fruit. All right, one more thing before I take you to this to a passage. Um, do you think, ladies and gentlemen, that earning a better standing in eternity is a good and healthy motivation for your soul? Do you think that's healthy? You know, um, fathers out there, you know, 
money's changed over the years. I mean, the, the, the way we pay for things has changed. But most of you have grown up in a world where you would recognize this kind of behavior, where dad's in the living room and uh, the 14-year-old daughter comes bebopping up and she's like, daddy, I love you so much, daddy. Oh, I just love you. Oh, baby, my little princess. Uh, can I have some money? And he goes, well, yeah, well, of course, my little princess. Well, sure. <laughs> but wouldn't it be nicer to have that experience without the, can I have some money part? What if princess just came up and said, daddy, I just love you so much. And that's it. Which do you think is more, which do you think has its, has its moorings in love? Well, the latter. And what I'm saying to you is, um, I think that's how God wants us to live. And that's why we spent so much time trying to articulate the whole redemptive theater last week. I'm submitting to you that a, a point system in heaven is a flawed theology, a fundamentally flawed doctrine. So to grasp the passage that I read to you, which is the biggie, uh, it, it's the, this, this verse 10 of our passage, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That is a potent verse. And it's the linchpin of, uh, uh, of the argument, all right? So to grasp that passage, let's remember what the same apostle Paul wrote to the same people. So let's back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, the reason 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 are uh, almost universally examined together it is because they both feature judgment. The judgment seat of Christ uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, it's the day, a lot of your translations have a capital D, the day of judgment, okay? So it's this event when we stand before our maker. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look at verse 4. Um, Paul writing here, he says, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Um, oh, where is it? Um, where is it? Oh, I'm in the wrong. Where am I? I'm in chapter four. Okay, hang on a second. Here it is. See, I even marked it. Okay, here it is. Yay, thank you. Oh, yes, yes, listen. I'm on the same page, wrong spot. Um, he, verse four, he says, oh, yes, some people go, well, uh, somebody says, I follow the apostle Paul. He's my man. Uh, yes, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm his disciple. And somebody else says, well, uh, I follow Apollos. Um, and Paul says, hey, hey, hey. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Who are we? What are we? The answer is servants. If there's, a, if you're a servant, that means you got a Lord. We're servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And he says, he reasons, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now listen, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul's saying, yeah, I'm the apostle Paul. Oh, he's penning scripture. Yeah, there's Paul, there's Apollos, but what are we? We're not anything. He's saying we're 0% of the transaction, 0%. It is God who gives the growth. Now, the same Paul then says... Check it, verse 8. He who plants 
And he who waters are one. I mean, we're doing the same work, Paul and Apollos. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. Now we go, wow. Now what's he saying? Is there a reward system in heaven? Is that what he's saying? Has he forgotten? Is he just, did he just suddenly get amnesia and forget what he just wrote? That we don't do anything? We plant in water, but that's nothing. It's God who gives the growth. Did he forget he just said that when he said we're going to receive wages according to his labor? No, no, no. Because watch what he says in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now it's even more intensified. God's doing this. It's his field. It's his building. It's his work. He still has the context. And so what I'm saying to you is this. We get the bookends. God's doing all of it. We're responsible. And by the way, God's doing all of it. You see the bookends? You see how the, the Bible, and let me show this to you, the Bible is never sheepish about laying out the sufficiency and exclusivity of the cross right next to our happy indebtedness. And another way of saying happy indebtedness would be fruit. In other words, a desire for a seeking of holy things in the power of the Spirit. In other words, an engagement in love and good deeds. And you know why the Bible doesn't mind that tension? Hey, God's doing it all, and you're responsible. God's doing it all, participate. God's doing it all, keep in step with the Holy Spirit. God's doing it all, you'll be held accountable. Why doesn't the Bible have a problem with that tension? Because, ladies and gentlemen, that's the way grace works. Um, Look at verse 10 of our passage. In um, 2 Corinthians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, is that a scary thought to you? Just, I mean, just stop there. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Is that a scary thought? Should it be a scary thought? Not if Christ won you. What is, I wonder what the Apostle Paul says about it. Like, I wish there was something like really close by to this statement that would give us some sense of how he feels about standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Oh, wait a second. Look at uh, verse six. We are always of good courage. Look at verse eight. Yes, we are of good courage. Oh, yes, uh, we're in this life right now. We're going to go to be with him, and it's going to be better to go to be with him. But right now, we're of good courage. We must all appear before the judgment seat of, of Christ. And Paul is doubly of good courage. Uh, let me ask you a question, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, continue on, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Ask you a question. What are you do, human? What are you do? Aren't you do judgment? Aren't you do punishment? Aren't you do separation? Aren't you do being jettisoned from the kind intention of God forever? If the nature of God is burningly hot and utterly pure, and you ain't that, what do you do? Except that God has interceded. 
And God has provided the righteousness of God in his son, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect human life. You didn't live the human, perfect human life. He did. And so he's able to go to the judge and say, take me, not him. Take me, not her. I will lay my life down. And the judge goes, you know what? I'm looking at the record. You can. You're the only one who can. We're due being separated, but Christ interceded. And so, um, I ask these questions of you. Are the sins you committed in the past, Christian, believer in the cross of Christ, are the sins you committed in the past um, covered through the crucified Christ by grace alone? Are they? Are the sins you will commit, and you will commit them, are the sins you will commit, are they covered by the crucified Christ by God's grace alone? Are they? Well, then be of good courage when you stand before the judgment seat of God. Be of good courage because Christ's work is sufficient. What you've got now is a life of God's doing, God's doing, God's doing through you. Christ's ministry in the power of the Spirit through you. I mean, what do you think Pentecost was, the beginning of Acts? It's the continuation of Christ's ministry through you, through his church in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Here's a quote from uh, Titus, a verse from Titus uh, 3, 5. Listen. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. No, 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 no. Here's another one. 2 Timothy 1.9. This is the NIV. He saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, which is a mind blow. But check this out too. We read that again. He saved us. What is that? Justification. And called us to a holy life. What is that? Sanctification. Not because of anything we have done. Friends, grace, 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 grace. Hey, can I turn you to the Old Testament? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy 9, and look at verse 4. He's, uh, he's saying here, O Israel, listen, Israel, want to know what the real scoop on you is, Israel? Here you go. Verse 4, do not say in your heart, after the Lord has thrust out, driven out some of you, the inhabitants of the land, driven them out before you, don't think... It's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Look at verse 5. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. Look at the end of uh, verse 5. That God may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You see what's happening? It ain't because of you, Israelite people. That's not how grace works. 
It's because the Lord promised and he's faithful to his promise. That's why. Don't think in your heart. It's because of your righteousness. Verse 6. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Look at the end of verse 7. I love this. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, is that not your story? It's mine. (laughs) The day I came out of Egypt, I'm still rebellious. I still have to do everything by God's grace. I'm still reliant upon the Holy Spirit and not of my own power. I still only accomplish anything of any spiritual good because it's God who worketh in me. You know, folks, uh, we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Aren't you prone to leave the God you love? We say, here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for the great redemption center. Like Chuck E. Cheese. No, what's the appeal to? The appeal to is the courts. Seal my heart by your spirit for the court. Your court. Yeah, we're prone to wander in this life. That's true. But at the same time, we express um, our, our need and our resting in God's work to our benefit. That's the whole point. And by the way, I'll, I'll add this too. You know, in uh, Isaiah 64, it uh, basically states that our own attempts at righteous deeds are as good as filthy rags. That's, that never changes. <laughs> um, it, it's only God who can produce uh, spiritual good. How about this? 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We can't know anything of any spiritual good unless the Lord shows it to us. We can't. That's what the Bible says. So if you want an application for your life, the application is this. God gives us a dignity of involvement. I think I need to come down a little bit because I'm ringing. Um, God gives us a dignity of involvement. He involves us in this work of ministry life. He, he thus works out his salvation in us. That is, he teaches us toward the fullest meaning of the gospel. Now, I got an awesome quote for you from this wonderful brother, Kistemacher, uh, Simon Kistemacher. And, um, oh, this is just so rich. Just try to lock with this, okay? Just grab onto this. It says, God accepts us not because of works that in themselves are stained by sin, right? They're filthy rags, right? He says God accepts us not not by the works that are stained by sin, but because of the meritorious work of Jesus Christ. And then he quotes a theologian who says, having thus received us in his favor, God graciously accepts our work also. And it is upon this undeserved acceptance that the reward depends. Man, I just love that. It's, it's, it's saying, look, you can't work your way by your stained deeds into God's righteousness. No, no, it's only the meritorious work of Jesus Christ. And yet God accepts our labors and it's an undeserved acceptance. Isn't that amazing? 
He, he gives us the dignity of involvement. He works out salvation in us, and he summons us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. It's a, it's a tension the Bible loves to allow. Now, let's talk about a couple other things yeah, before, we, before we wrap the whole thing up. Let's talk about crowns, okay? Because I know you go, ooh, there's not a reward system in heaven. What about crowns? Because we sing, until we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. And I got to tell you, I'm not going to stop singing that. I think it's wonderful that we sing that. Um, I think it's a principle that we can sing. But let's talk about crowns. There are five main passages about crowns that apply to human beings, okay? And the five main passages, uh, oh gosh, I better just, I'm going to go real quick so I don't bog you down. But the first one is, um, I'm already here, in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, and basically it's uh, it's uh, saying this, Paul's going, hey, hey, um, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? And he's saying, so run that you may obtain that prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So he's saying, hey, it's not the, like the Olympics where, uh, you know, you get a thing on your head and it dries up and goes away, uh, or a medal that goes into a desk drawer one day when you croak. He's saying we ha- we we are we run like the race for an imperishable prize, and uh, he's basically saying, hey, um, you know, there's a there's a prize out there, there's a crown out there, there's a there's a goal out there, but what is he saying? Does that teach a hierarchy, a series of different levels of enjoyment of heavenly bliss? Does that passage in any way point to that? No. He's talking about the, the difference between imperishable and perishable. In other words, saved or not saved. We're saved, so we run in a different way. We run in a different race. That's all he's saying there. It has nothing to do with an eternal reward system. That's a, that's a fabricated, if you use that to support it, fabricated. This one's disqualified. All right, next one. Um, Thessalonians. Um, chapter two. Let me just jump there real quick. Uh, Thessalonians chapter two. And, um, it, it refers to, yeah, uh, a crown of boasting. It says, um, what is our hope? Verse 19. What is our hope or joy or a crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Is it not you for our, you are our glory and joy? So it's talking about Jesus Christ coming again. And it says, what is our hope? or joy, or crown of boasting. What are those, ladies and gentlemen? Hope, joy, crown of boasting. The Bible loves to use synonyms. Does it all the time. That's what these are. It's talking about our, our blessings in a, in a full way. And by the way, I, I mean, just a tiny drop of textual criticism will show you that, that hope and joy and uh, crown of boasting are obviously used interchangeably here uh, to make the point, and that, that frequently occurs in a Hebraic understanding. So if you're going to say, well, uh, there, there's the word crown in there, so let's build a doctrine on that. You cannot build a doctrine on that. How could you? has nothing to do with an eternal reward system, just because it's got a word crown in there. It's that you bring your preconceived uh, notions to the to the argument, all right? Let me have you turn with me to 2 Timothy. So um, 
So you got Thessalonians, uh, hang a right, and you got Timothy. So we're going to go to 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. Here's another crown passage for you. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. Um, it says, henceforth, this is the same, uh, same Apostle Paul writing out of Timothy. He says, henceforth there is laid up for me, you know, after I fight the good fight, finish the race, kept the faith, I depart, I go to be with the Lord. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, with a capital D. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, you've got, if you have an NIV, you'll have all who long for his appearing, long for his appearing. Let me ask you a question, friends. Who longs for Christ's appearing? You, Christians? Who loves the idea of Christ's return? Is it you, Christians? The point is, Paul's point is, it's either the saved person or the unsaved person who longs for the day. The unsaved person doesn't long for the day. They don't even believe in the day. But we long for the day, and that's what Paul is saying. Again, he's saying he's not saying, well, I'm going to get the crown of righteousness because there's an award system where we all get different crowns, and I get 14 and you get three. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you're either rescued by the blood of the lamb or you're not, and you face God's righteous indignation. That's all he's saying. Can't build a doctrine on that. All right. Um, here's another one for you. Um, James 1.12. I'm just going to read it to you. I've got it typed in here. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has, he will receive the crown of life. What is that referring to? The perseverance of the saints, friends. It's an idea that there's either you're either a saved person or you're not a saved person. If you are a saved person, you'll persevere to the end. Um, there's a good quote for you. Although not all believers always respond properly to God or to trials, all do sometimes. Isn't that true, Christian? Yeah, you fail, you sin. But don't you want to follow the Savior? Do you hear the shepherd's voice? Well, yay, because that's the evidence of God's Holy Spirit in you. You crave holy things. You, you want to desire in God's law. You don't always do it, but sometimes you do. Saved or not saved is the point. All right, and the last one, 1 Peter 5, 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, what is that? Yay, it's heavenly bliss. It's not a reward system in heaven. You know, um, I'll give you one more, and, and this, is not a, this is not about human beings. Flip ahead to Revelation, if you would. We're, all, we're in the home stretch. We're almost done. Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. Ah, let's go verse 9. And while you find that, <clears throat> I'm going to say, uh, 
um, this is written about uh, the creatures on, around the throne, on each side of the throne, these angelic beings that are around the throne of God. It's very strange and otherworldly to us. It's supposed to be. It's hard to grasp what God and his glory is like. And it continues in verse 9, and it says, whenever the living creatures you know, around God's throne give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crown before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. But what is that a picture of? Who's throwing down their crowns? Angels. So is it okay to sing, till we cast our crowns before thee? I think it's fine. I don't think I'm going to turn into an angel. But I think the idea is that people in the presence of God, beings, I should say, in the presence of God, see him as he is. And they say, oh, <laughs> you, listen, anything I thought I achieved, I know. Oh, I know. I know who you are. I know that you're worthy of glory and honor and power, that you're my maker, and that I exist because of you. They get it. Everyone in God's presence gets it, and they say, whatever I accomplished, I know it's all from you. So I think it's good that we can sing till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. That's going to happen. That's what people in, that's what beings in God's presence do. But at no time does that teach, well, I've got 57 crowns. Look at my crowns. If you get a crown, what are you going to do with it? No, 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 no. It's all you, Lord. It's all you. Isn't that freeing to your soul, friends? Isn't that freeing? You know, we worship you, O sovereign of heaven. Sing that all the time, right? And come to give you all that we are. So that's what a Christian wants to do. I want to give you all that I am. You know why? Everything given by your hand. That's a gift. Everything given by our hearts, that's a gift. By, by, from whom? It's a gift of a God who delights in his people and the joy of his people's love. That's reality, ladies and gentlemen. I believe that is scriptural truth. I believe that's how grace works. Last thing here I'm going to show you is a, is a quote by Spurgeon. Um, Oh, this is so awesome. He says, the Lord will grant unto his people an abundant reward for all they have done. Not that they deserve any reward, since God first gave them the divine grace to do good works, and then took those good works as evidence of a renewed heart, and then gave them a reward for what they had done. Oh, what bliss it will be to hear it said, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, uh, and so he, he's, he's saying, hey, um, we're going to go and we're going to realize, hey, I did this and this and this and this, but it's only because you gave it to me, All right? The very next thing Spurgeon says, I drew a big red line. You see my big red line? He's saying, hey, God gave it. Um, we didn't deserve it. He gave it. It's all grace. It's grace, 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 says Spurgeon. And I draw a big red line. And then he says, but to the ungodly, how terrible. Spurgeon saying the same thing as the Bible. He's saying, you either got Christ or you need Christ. If you got Christ, 
then it's grace, 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 grace that's enabled you. Now walk in step with the Holy Spirit of God. Very simply, um, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 5 has much to do with the judgment seat of Christ. It's true. But he who sits on the judgment seat of Christ is Christ. What do you think he's going to say when you face our Lord? What do you think he's going to say, Christian? I'll tell you what he's going to say. It is finished. And welcome home. Lord, we just thank you for the noises of redeemed people uh, in our hearing. We thank you, Lord, that you have um, seen past our own selves and have drawn up uh, sinners and cleansed them and made them your own. And we pray, Lord, that we would understand grace more deeply and understand then the responsibilities that come with grace. We pray that um, our love and gratitude would be our motive and uh, that you would see that we persevere to the end. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, you guys.